Okay, well, we've said this month uh, that we've, we've started a new annual theme for our preaching ministry, and the theme is finding life in Jesus' name. And normally, we've said that uh, we would go through a selection of sermon series from the Old and New Testament, from the whole Bible, under this annual theme. But this year is a little different. We're going through, uh, taking almost the whole year to go through the gospel according to John. We're going to go slow. We're going to go chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And uh, we will see uh, the testimony of one of the closest friends and followers of Jesus, that is John the Apostle. And what he has to say about who Jesus is, about what Jesus accomplished, and what that means for us today. Uh, for those of us who are Christians, we are followers of Jesus or disciples of Jesus. And so uh, we still, to this day, need to learn what that looks like. And we find what that looks like from God's word. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, please take it and open it to John chapter 2, starting with verse 13. Uh, if you'd like to follow along, I always encourage that. If you it just kind of, it's a good habit to get into. We'll put the scripture up on the screens for you as well. Uh, but we're starting with John chapter 2, starting with verse 13. So this morning, we're going to be talking about something that may not initially seem like it matters to you today, okay? We're gonna be talking about ancient practices of worship, including things like temples or tabernacles and th things of this nature. Now, stick with me, because I promise you that this matters to you, uh, even if it doesn't immediately become apparent. But you gotta, you gotta stick with me. Do you, can you do that for me this morning? Can you, do you promise? Okay. All right. Sit up straight. Go get another cup of coffee if you need it and, bear, and hang on. Okay. Well, let's jump right in in John chapter 2, starting with verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Okay, let's pause here for a moment. So did Jesus just lose it? <laughs> did, did he, does Jesus have an anger problem? Uh, these might be questions in your mind from this passage. What is going on here? Well, uh, John gives us the setting, which was that it was almost time for the Jewish Passover. Now he specifies it as Jewish Passover because he's largely writing to people outside of Israel, outside of Judea. Uh, who would have been uh, in the Roman culture. And so, but the Passover was a national festival that commemorated the time at the start of the Exodus out of Egypt when God had the Jewish people sacrifice a lamb and put the blood on the door frames of their houses. And everyone who was covered under the blood of this sacrifice was protected from the judgment of God. They would be passed over when the judgment would come. If they weren't covered by this blood sacrifice, they would be under the same judgment as the Egyptians. So when this took place, Pharaoh finally agreed to let the people of Israel go. Let my people go. 
okay, as they were slaves there in Egypt, and, and he agreed to let them go. So after this, the Lord commanded his people to continue to celebrate the Passover as one of their national festivals or feasts. They were, the people, wherever they were in the promised land, were to return to Jerusalem uh, for a week and remember together what God had done to free them from captivity, to save them. Now, this was to be a serious time, uh, a holy time. And when Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and remember everywhere in the Bible that it says that, it's referring to up in elevation. So Jesus was spending time, we saw last week, in the northern regions of Galilee, and then he went south, but he went up to Jerusalem. When he found the temple there, and the people in the temple, he did not find what he should have found. He did not find people who had a spirit of repentance, a humble spirit. Uh, he, he did not find people who had broken and contrite hearts. Instead, he found a noisy and bustling marketplace. Now, there's nothing wrong with a market, and there's nothing wrong with buying and selling lawful things, uh, but this was not God's intention there in the temple. So Jesus uh, made a whip and drove the animals out and overturned tables and scattered the coins and drove the people out saying, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Now, besides the shock, I'm sure, of many people at the actions of Jesus, uh, there's also this phrase, my father's house. Jesus is referring here to the temple as my father's house. Now, this is significant because nobody talked like this. No one referred to God as their father. Now, this will be a thread that runs all the way through John's gospel. We'll see it again and again. Jesus is questioned uh, many times about this. Uh, but here we see Jesus clearly saying that God is his father. Now, in the Old Testament, God is sometimes called the father of Israel as a nation, but, but never in this individual, personalized way that Jesus uses and then teaches to his disciples. Remember when he taught his disciples to pray, he said to pray to God as our father. <laughs> as our father. <laughs> Can we edit that together? <laughs> No, this is live. Okay, welcome back. Okay, so only Jesus calls God his father. Now later, he will get major pushback on this point because people rightly saw that Jesus making this claim was claiming that God as his father was making Jesus equal to God. He was putting himself on the same plane or same level of authority as God the Father in heaven. Now, which from our vantage point, we know is actually true. But the people at that time didn't know and they didn't yet believe that Jesus was the divine son. Well, later, the disciples remembered this and they remembered, probably as they were studying Psalm 69, where it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. And they rightly interpreted that psalm as being about Jesus. 
and that Jesus had an incredible zeal. He had a passion for the temple. It was all consuming. And so they realized that's the motive that Jesus had when he did this uh, clearing or cleansing of the temple courts. So it wasn't an anger problem. He didn't lose it. He was zealous for the temple of the Lord, his father's house. Well, how did people respond? <laughs> how would we have responded if we were standing there? What did they think about all this? Look back at verse 18. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. All right, let's pause here one more time. So the Jews and you know, maybe these were people who, some of the people who were selling uh, that just had their tables knocked out from underneath them. Maybe these were some authorities from the temple. At any rate, th these uh, people questioned him and asked him for some sort of sign that Jesus had the authority to do these things. Now, this is a good question. If someone came in here and completely disrupted our service, some of us might be thinking, where do you get the authority to do that? And that was the question for Jesus. Jesus was acting and speaking as if the temple was his. So just who did this Jesus think he was? What gave him the right to do all of this? Well, it's this question, a question of authority that comes up again and again in the public ministry of Jesus. Some people responded to what they saw, the signs that Jesus did, the, mir the miraculous works, in awe and wonder and worship. And others questioned him. Who are you to do and say these things? What gives you the right? Well, Jesus responds, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Now, before the resurrection of Jesus, no one was thinking about anything very significant happening after three days. So for us, for me, I won't drag you into this, but for me, when I re read three days, I'm thinking on the third day, he rose again from the dead, right? Well, at this time, before the resurrection, nobody had that in their minds. But later, John says that after the resurrection, the disciples were like, oh, and they recalled what he said and they realized that this is what he was talking about. He was referring to his own body when he said this temple. Now he's standing in the temple in Jerusalem, but he says, if you destroy this temple, I will raise it again in three days. However, at this time, again, no one really understood what Jesus was talking about. And as a preacher, I feel like that, I take some comfort in that. There were times when nobody understood what Jesus was talking about. Praise the Lord, okay? <laughs> Happens to the best of us. Uh, well, clearly they didn't understand because they said, 
essentially, what do you mean? It's taken us 46 years to build this temple in Jerusalem. And you're going to raise it in three days? How could you do that? Okay, so they just don't get it. Well, what does this mean? What is the significance of this? Because Jesus doesn't do anything by accident. He's very intentional in the words that he uses and in the, what he is doing in response to the clearing or cleansing of the temple. What is the significance of Jesus saying that he was the temple? Well, to understand this, we have to understand the history of the temple. And this is where you're going to have to hold on, okay? Hold on tight. About 1,500 years earlier, God had made a covenant with the ancient people of Israel at Mount Sinai. This was after the Passover that I mentioned, and the people had been freed from captivity in Egypt. Now, part of the law that God gave the people through the prophet Moses was uh, some instructions to build a tabernacle, also called a tent of meeting, big tent. Now, it was, this was where the priests made their, were to make their offerings. This was where the tabernacle was where the unique power and presence of God would dwell among the people of Israel. And for about 500 years, as the people of Israel traveled throughout the wilderness for that first generation of the Exodus, and then finally settled in the promised land of Canaan, uh, they brought the tabernacle with them wherever they went. The priests and the Levites were in charge of all of this around the worship of God. Now, then, after about 500 years, around in the time of King David, uh, the people of Israel were much more established in the land. They had an unprecedented level of power and, and peace and influence all, all around because of, of King David. And so, David had it on his heart to build God a house, to build him a temple, to build, to take the mobile sanctuary of the tabernacle and establish something more permanent. Um, so David made provisions for it, but it actually uh, wasn't built until the reign of his son Solomon. So the temple was built in the city of Jerusalem and, and became, this was about 3,000 years ago, it became the central place of worship for Israel for another 500 or so years until the time of the exile. So because of the disobedience of the people of Israel, God allowed Israel to be conquered and carried away into captivity once again. He had freed them from Egypt and then allowed them to be carried off into Babylon. And the temple was destroyed and ceased to function for many years. But then, during the reign of, of Herod the Great, the Roman governor, during the time when Jesus was born, uh, Herod decided to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. The people of Israel under Roman rule were in a pretty stable and peaceful place, and so they decided to rebuild. It took 46 years to build, as the people mentioned in this passage, but this was clearly a symbol. It was the heart of the people of Israel. It was a symbol of their national pride. It was, a, it was the central place of their faith in the one true and living God. Ultimately, the temple would be destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans in response to a Jewish rebellion. But again, it, and, and again, it ceased to function as this place of worship and has ceased in that capacity ever since. Okay, you'd made it. Way to go, okay? Let's keep going. Let's finish this passage with verse 23. 
Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. This is God's word. Well, as we said last week, Jesus performed many, many miracles, or signs, as John calls them, during his public ministry. Uh, it's, it's just, I like to say, it's just Jesus being Jesus. So we will see many signs in the weeks and months ahead. In fact, John gives us seven signs that teach us different aspects about the person and work of Jesus. Um, but today, we, uh, we, we don't get any signs. So it just says, Jesus was just being Jesus, it was amazing, and, and some people believed in him. But for now, the people asked Jesus for a sign, remember. What sign can you give us that proves that you have the authority to do these things? And he gives them this cryptic answer that points ahead clearly to the resurrection, to his own death and resurrection. And then he proceeds to do many signs during the Passover festival, which causes some to believe as others already had started to believe. However, even as John says that people started to put their faith in him, this, this passage ends with this kind of curious note that Jesus didn't put his faith in the people, even as the people started to put their faith in him. Now, Jesus certainly knew about the general struggle with sin. He certainly knew that, but also as the author of life, as the creator, he knows how we are formed. He knows the thoughts of our hearts. He can see us through and through. And so he truly knew what the people could be trusted with and what they could not at this time. And it, this isn't... Uh, uh, dig on people. This is why Jesus came. But Jesus, and Jesus also knew how fickle a crowd could be. One day a crowd might think you're the greatest person ever, and the next day they might turn against you. Jesus will have a few moments like this that we'll see as we go throughout this series as well. So Jesus loved them, he taught them. He healed them, he fed them, he ministered to them, he performed signs for them, but he didn't entrust himself to them. He didn't live for their approval. He didn't live for their applause. He knew what was in each person. Now, before we get to how we might apply this teaching today, I think we need to do a little more work on what Jesus means, what it means for Jesus to be a temple. Okay, grab hold again. Here we go. I, just a little bit more work on this. So I already gave a little history of the tabernacle and then the temple, but we haven't talked much about the function of a temple or what it was for. The temple was supposed to be a place of forgiveness and fellowship. Forgiveness of sins and fellowship with God. So let's unpack both of those elements. First, the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins came uh, under the Old Testament law through the whole sacrificial system. 
And that foreshadow, that was foreshadowed by the Passover itself. For the wages of sin is death. But there is life, there is safety, there is forgiveness possible and peace offered when you are covered by the blood of a sacrifice. So for 1,500 years under this old covenant, the people of Israel, led by the priests and the Levites, made sacrificial offerings to make atonement or to pay for their sins. Now this practice culminated every year on Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. Since all the sacrifices and offerings were made in the tabernacle and then in the temple, it was supposed to be a place of forgiveness. It was supposed to be a place where offerings were made and forgiveness and reconciliation with God was held out as an offer. Now second, the temple was supposed to be a place of fellowship with God. You see, sin always separates. In your marriage, in your family, in your workplace, in our society, in our relationship with God, sin separates. But once the problem of sin was, was dealt with through the sacrificial system, through the forgiveness that was offered by God, then the people could be with and enjoy and worship God in freedom and thanksgiving and joy. That's what the temple was supposed to be about. God's presence and power was there. And the people were giving offerings and they were singing songs of praise and they were able to pray together and they were, listen, they were able to listen to God's word being read and taught. And the temple was this picture of God's desire to be with us and to dwell with his people. It was like a place where heaven and earth came together. Heaven is God's space and earth is our space. Theologian N.T. Wright refers to this as the overlapping and interlocking of heaven and earth, of God's space and our space coming together. But how does all this connect to Jesus? What's the significance of Jesus saying that he is the temple? Well, as we work through John's gospel, we'll see that, that everything that the people had done with the temple for 1,500 years, the work of the priests, the whole sacrificial system, the Day of Atonement, all of these things and more, all pointed forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. Because ultimately, Jesus fulfills the temple. Now John has already been hinting at this. Back in the beginning of this series, in the beginning, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the prologue of John's Gospel, John said that Jesus was the Word of God made flesh who made his dwelling among us. Now, I said then that John literally wrote that he tabernacled among us. Again, before the temple, the tabernacle or the tent of meeting was the place where heaven and earth came together. So in Jesus, everything that the tabernacle and the temple signified was perfectly fulfilled. Now, what does that mean? Well, it probably means many things, uh, but there are two main ways, I believe, that Jesus perfectly fulfills the temple. Let's use that dual purpose of the temple of forgiveness and fellowship to see this. So first, fellowship. 
The temple represents the union of God and man, the coming together of heaven and earth. And nowhere else does this happen more clearly than in the person of Jesus Christ. Because in Jesus, we find one person with two natures. Jesus is fully God and he is fully man. Now this is a theme that we often talk about around Christmas time, right? Because the incarnation of Jesus, of Jesus, the eternal divine son and word of God being made flesh, he was God and became a man. And so that's often the theme around Christmas. Uh, but the theological term for this, this dual nature of the God-man is called the hypostatic union. Now, if you remember that later, I will give you a dollar. <laughs> hypostatic union. <laughs> In Jesus, the son of man was also the son of God. In Jesus, the divine son from eternity past was also born of the Virgin Mary and was laid in a stable in Bethlehem. In his divine nature, when you see Jesus, you're seeing God. When you listen to Jesus, you are hearing God. And Jesus says and does things all the time that only God could say and do. But at the same time, in his human nature, Jesus had to grow up. He had to learn to walk and talk. He got tired and hungry and needed to eat and sleep. He faced the same temptations to sin in this broken world and had to resist that temptation to sin uh, and so on. He was really God and really a man. And so Jesus fulfills the temple because in the person of Jesus, heaven and earth are perfectly united. Although God is omnipresent, he is everywhere all at once. In the past, God chose to provide a special, unique manifestation of his glory, of his power, of his presence in the tabernacle, in the temple. In the Old Testament, we get the language of a cloud, fire, power, radiant glory, and so forth. In some way, and maybe it's a way that we can't fully understand, God was there. In the same way Jesus can calm the storm with a word, he can heal the sick or the disabled from afar just with his will. He can command a legion of demons or all the host of heaven and they would have to obey him because he is the Lord and the master and the king and the Christ. He had glory in the presence of his father from before the creation of the world and yet he promises to be with us even to the very end of the age. So in Jesus, God's presence, his power is found without measure. He is the temple. He is the place where heaven and earth come together. He is the place where we can have fellowship with God. But again, there's a problem because sin separates. So we can't just have fellowship with God through Jesus. We need the forgiveness too. So we need the second function of the temple in Jesus, which is forgiveness. Now, all of the work of the Old, Test, Old uh, Covenant, the whole sacrificial system, the atonement, the work of the priests and the Levites, and on and on, all of these things point forward to the need for the ultimate priest, for the ultimate sacrifice for the ultimate lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now at this time, 
this was not clear. The people didn't understand, the disciples didn't fully understand, but from our vantage point today, we can understand. We can see how Jesus is the temple. He is the place where heaven and earth come together. He is the place that we can have fellowship with God and enjoy God, his presence and his power. He is the temple of fellowship. But at the same time, from our vantage point, we know that he went to the cross. We know that he offered himself freely on the cross as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. We know that he died. We know that he was buried. We know and we believe that on the third day he rose again alive from the dead. He's conquered sin. He has conquered death. And he offers that victory to all who would believe. And so today, Jesus can offer both fellowship and forgiveness because the temple of his body was in fact destroyed and raised on the third day. So what does all this mean for us? You might be thinking, wow, that's a lot. So what? It's a good question. It's a discipleship question. Well, in this passage, Jesus says, I am the temple. In the gospel, we see how he is the temple. But then, for those of us who do believe and do trust him for the forgiveness of our sins, and we do trust him to have fellowship, this new right relationship with God, for us then, the rest of the story is that we then become the temple. In Christ, you are a temple. Now this is, I think, an underappreciated aspect of the Christian life. I don't see a lot of books or Bible studies on being a temple. But this is incredibly important. It's one of the foundational pictures of what it means to be a Christian and to be a part of the, the body of Christ that is the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul understands this connection. And in talking about sexual temptation, which is a sin within the body, he says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? He says, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So my friends, if you are a temple of the living God, then what you do with your body matters just as it mattered to Jesus that the, the house of his father would not be turned into a marketplace. It wasn't for that. He wasn't saying marketplaces are bad. It just was the wrong context. It was the wrong activity. It was not the purpose of that place. So in the same way, there are things that we can do with our bodies that are not how they were designed to do. They were not what we are for. Some people get the idea, and this is an ancient Greek idea, that the physical doesn't matter as much as the spiritual. That the spiritual is higher and the physical realm is lower. That is not a Christian thought. Because the, the idea of a Christian body is that it has become a temple, united with Christ, who is the temple, 
infused and filled with the Holy Spirit, we become the place where heaven and earth have come together. We have become the place where fellowship and forgiveness are offered. Therefore, it matters what we do with our bodies. Now, secondly, not just as individuals, but secondly, as a church, in Christ, you are a temple and you are being built up in a greater temple. This is an expanding picture. Ephesians chapter two, the apostle Paul says, consequently you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. He's giving us a whole bunch of pictures of what it looks like to be a part of the church. This household is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling, a tabernacle, a tent of meeting in which God lives by his spirit. Now this gives an, an, a radical value to human beings and human bodies. We, in Christ, have become a temple of the living God. We, as a church, are being built up and rising up together to be a glorious house for the Father in heaven. And we will be joined to him, we will have fellowship with him, because of the forgiveness of our sins that was made possible by the Son. Let us pray. Oh Lord, please forgive us for having too low of a view of, of our bodies, of our value, of what you have ordained for us of what you are doing, doing in us and through us in the church. Lord, would you forgive us and would you help us restore to us the joy of your salvation? Knit us together, Lord, with yourself and knit us together, bind us together in love through the bonds of love with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Father, I pray that we would, just as Jesus cleansed the temple, that we would look inward within ourselves. And if there's anything wrong, if there's anything offensive to you, Lord, would you overturn those tables? Would you drive those things out of us, Lord? Would you, would you have zeal, the zeal that you uh, displayed here in this passage, would you display that in our hearts and lives as well? Would you cleanse us? Would you make us holy? Would you make us godly? Would you make us glorious and radiant temples to display the light of your goodness and your grace? Father, I pray that we would also see every other person that we encounter in our lives as a potential temple of infinite worth Lord, would we, would we be people that, that just tell the story of your grace and your goodness over and over through our lives? We thank you for the work that you have done. We praise you for the work that you will do.
And we can't wait for that future day when Jesus will return and we will be able to dwell with you, Lord, face to face forever. Until that day, we pray in Jesus' name.